I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to the latest of our We the People Constitutional Podcast. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And this week, we'll be discussing a fascinating new case that the Supreme Court just heard. It involves the diplomatic status of Jerusalem and the division of foreign policy powers between Congress and the president. Here are the facts. 12-year-old Menachem Benjamin Zivotofsky was born to American parents in Jerusalem. His parents asked the U.S. State Department to list Israel as their son's birthplace on his passport, citing the 2002 Foreign Relations Authorization Act, which requires the State Department to honor requests like this. At the time he signed the law, President George W. Bush attached a signing statement asserting that the passport statute is unconstitutional. President Barack Obama has taken the same position. This case has been to the Supreme Court before. In 2012, the court rejected the argument that the case was merely a political dispute between the executive and legislative branches. Uh, the case was sent back to the lower courts on the merit, and the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit ruled in favor of the president. Joining me to discuss the merits of this fascinating case and to give us their thoughts on this week's oral arguments are two of the leading scholars in the country who have weighed in forcefully on different sides of the debate. Mike Ramsey is the Hugh and Hazel Darling Foundation Professor of Law and the Director of International and Comparative Law Programs at the University of San Diego School of Law. Professor Ramsey teaches and writes in the areas of constitutional law, foreign relations law. He is a member of the Center for the Study of Constitutional Originalism, where he contributes to the Center's Originalism blog. Eugene Kontorovich is Professor of Law at Northwestern University School of Law, where he teaches and writes in the areas of constitutional law, international law, and law and economics. He has written and lectured extensively about the legal aspects of the Israeli-Arab conflict and is also a contributor to the Vola Conspiracy blog. Uh, welcome, gentlemen, and let's jump right into this fascinating case. Mike, the central question in this case is how the Constitution divides foreign policy powers among the branches of government. Tell us what the Constitution in fact says about the conduct of foreign policy, and in particular, which provisions of the Constitution authorize the President and Congress to make determinations about what uh, place of birth should be listed on a passport. Uh, well, thank you very much, and thank you for having me on this. Um, uh, there will be some dispute about this, but my view of it is that the uh, president's power here comes from the grant of executive power in Article 2, uh, Section 1 of the Constitution. Um, the executive power includes not only the power to uh, enforce the law, um, but also the power to represent the United States diplomatically um, on the world stage. That was an understanding that was held by the framers uh, in the 18th century, um, and it's one that's been uh, pursued by presidents uh, ever since, from George Washington on down. Um, and this is why we understand today that the president is the chief diplomat of the United States, um, and that he speaks for the United States uh, through the ambassadors that he appoints, through the ambassadors that he uh, that, that he meets with, coming from foreign countries, uh, and through his pronouncements about um, United States foreign policy. Uh, so that, I think, is the source of the president's power and is a source of the president's power 
um, to, uh, to speak about the status of Jerusalem uh, as applicable to this case. Um, the, the, the question is, what I, what I see as being a, a central question in this case, is whether that power is exclusive or not. That is, whether the power uh, is exclusive to the president so that Congress cannot act in a way that interferes with it. And that was the position that President Bush took when he issued the signing statement, and it's a position that President Obama has carried through in this case. Um, I, I think that proposition is incorrect. Uh, although I still think the president should, should win this case, as I'll explain uh, perhaps in response to a different question. But, but as to the powers of Congress then, Congress also has very substantial powers in foreign affairs in, in the Constitution. Uh, so the idea that Congress uh, cannot say anything uh, about uh, foreign affairs um, is, is a strange proposition because Congress has very broad powers. Congress uh, can impose trade embargoes. Uh, Congress can prohibit travel. Uh, Congress can even declare war on foreign countries. Uh, so uh, what you see is that the Constitution actually divides foreign affairs powers uh, between the president, uh, who has this general diplomatic power, in addition to some specific powers like receiving ambassadors and being commander-in-chief, and the Congress also has a number of powers that can be used um, to influence or uh, take positions on um, foreign affairs as well. So um, contrary to the, what the president has principally argued here, uh, I would stand with Alexander Hamilton, who understood the president's power and Congress's power to be concurrent rather than exclusive. And he said that in the context of the neutrality debates in 1793, um, when he said that the president had the power um, to declare neutrality, but of course Congress wanted to enact a different policy, um, they could of course do that. And that, that is my view uh, on the, the, what I see as the first constitutional question, that is, who has the power in foreign affairs? Great. Thank you for that very thoughtful uh, in introductory uh, statement. Uh, Eugene, uh, Mike has pointed to a bunch of what he calls concurrent powers, and I'll just summarize them for our listeners because I want to stick with the text. Incidentally, I'm reading from our wonderful new National Constitution Center pocket constitution with a new introduction, and I hope listeners will uh, write in and we can send you uh, copies of it. So Mike pointed to Article 2 for the President's Power. Section 1 says the executive power shall be vested in the President of the United States. And uh, Section 2 of Article 2 says that the president shall have the power to appoint ambassadors and other public ministers of councils and consuls. So those were two provisions he pointed to. On the congressional side, uh, he noted that uh, Congress in Section Article 1, Section 8, has the power to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states and also to establish a uniform rule of naturalization and he pointed some other powers too. What do you think of his uh, statement? Do you, do you, uh, would you add to any of the powers that Congress and the presidents have? And do you think that one uh, power should trump the other? Uh, so I, I largely uh, agree with Professor Ramsey's characterization. And indeed, I want to focus on a particular thing he said. I very much like the way he put it. It's thought that the executive's powers entail, uh, if not exclusivity, then some primacy and certainly uh, important role in the conduct of diplomacy with foreign countries. He is the chief diplomat, uh, and, and, and that's an important part of his foreign relations powers. Uh, so, but that raises the question, is what Congress has done in this law to say that the passports of people born in Jerusalem should say Israel for a place of birth, uh, is that an act of diplomacy? Is that an act of diplomacy? Uh, and I think there's very strong arguments that it is not an act of diplomacy, and there are several reasons for this. 
Diplomacy is the conduct of relations with foreign countries. It also includes things like recognition, determinations of sovereignty, and so forth. The place of birthline on the passport uh, was it was discussed in uh, in the discovery and in the evidence part of the case. Why is the place of birth listed at all on a passport? And the government agreed, and the State Department acknowledged that it was not listed in order to go around saying, to say what, what sovereigns we recognize, uh, to make determinations of sovereignty over, uh, over territory. It was listed for various bureaucratic purposes of identifying American nationals uh, and just as a, as a way of referring to people. Uh, just like the date of birth is not a communication necessarily to foreign countries, it's a way to know whose passport, uh, whose passport this is, uh, principally for purposes of internal communications about Americans by the American government. And uh, it's also the position of the State Department that listing things on the passport does not necessarily uh, mean a recognition of sovereignty. Thus, in a separate law, uh, Cong Congress provided that people born in Taiwan can have Taiwan written in their passport, even though uh, the United States does not recognize any entity known as Taiwan. So there's a question. So the, the important preliminary question before one discusses the question of concurrent powers, and I agree with Professor Ramsey that the powers over foreign relations are concurrent, uh, the question is, is there anything even like a conflict here? Is the Congress trying to assert diplomatic powers? And it's quite clear that none of the consequences of this statute, uh, of having Israel listed um, in the passport, entail the typical diplomatic consequences uh, of uh, recognition, such as sovereign immunity, uh, or uh, or, act, uh, or other or other things that would uh, that would follow from recognition, and it, this came up in oral arguments. The surest proof that this doesn't assert or in any way interfere with the executive's role in uh, formulating foreign policy the way he sees it is the executive can uh, put a big stamp on the passport saying uh, we don't think Israel uh, Jerusalem is actually part of Israel. And that would that would be entirely uh, entirely valid too. So, and one other power while we're enumerating powers that hasn't been mentioned uh, is the immigration and naturalization power. Um, so, to uh, which uh, is thought to relate uh, to the issuance of passports. So, for example, uh, American citizens born overseas or someone born to American parents overseas, when they come to America, they need to have a passport. Uh, demonstrating that they are in fact uh, an, an American citizen, and thus Congress can participate in the process of issuing passports and regulate the contact, con the uh, the contents of passports. Great. Uh, so the argument is well joined, um, Mike. As uh, Eugene agrees with you that the president and Congress's powers are concurrent, and that the president has powers over diplomatic communications because of his power to recognize ambassadors, but he says that putting Jerusalem on your passport is not a diplomatic communication, and that did indeed come up in the oral argument. And the lawyer uh, against the U.S. government uh, insisted that this was really just a form of self-identification, not a diplomatic communication. This prompted Justice Elena Kagan to say that it was a kind of glorified vanity license plate law. What is your position on whether or not the law requiring people to list uh, Jerusalem on their passport is or is not a diplomatic communication, and what is that? Uh, what are the consequences for that uh, in this case? 
well, uh, I'm not uh, sure that I need to decide that question for my position. Uh, I, I think that there is an element of a diplomatic communication in the sense that it, it is on the passport, and the passport is a communication from the president to foreign countries. Uh, it's the principal role, historical role of a passport. It's, it's in, in the nature of a safe conduct or a request for a safe conduct or safe treatment from the foreign sovereign. So that, that, that's what a passport's historical role is. So I, I think it's uh, – uh, I'm not sure I would be uh, comfortable saying that there is no diplomatic communication here at all. I'm, I'm not sure whether the case turns on that point or not, though. What the president's argument is, first, is that uh, it interferes with uh, – Eugene used this phrase, and I think that is this is the core of the president's uh, argument – is that the um, what Congress is doing here is it interferes with the president's role uh, as diplomat. Um, and uh, in the oral argument, then, um, Justice Scalia – pushed back hard against that and, and said that um, there's no rule that Congress can't interfere so long as Congress is acting within its, uh, within its power. Uh, and uh, I, I think that's right. Um, Congress can interfere with the president's diplomatic power uh, by, for example, doing something like uh, passing a trade embargo on a country that the president's trying to have friendly relations with. Um, so for me, it's, it's somewhat immaterial whether this is an interference with the president's role in, in diplomacy or not, because I think separation of powers entitles Congress um, to, uh, to engage in interference if, if that's what Congress thinks is best. The president's uh, remedy is to veto the law if he thinks it's inappropriate. But let me turn to where I think the disagreement um, between uh, me and Eugene principally is. Um, I, I am quite doubtful. Um, that Congress has a power um, to make this act in the first place. Congress must act pursuant to the powers given to it by the Constitution, which are principally those listed in Article I, Section 8. Um, and indeed, Justice Scalia, in his comment in uh, the uh, oral argument, prefaced it um, by, by saying that, um, and I'm more or less quoting here, if, is it, if it is within Congress's power, what difference does it make whether it antagonizes a foreign country? Well, I agree with that statement, but I would put the most weight on the first part of it, which says if it is within Congress's power, and I am very doubtful that this is within Congress's power, uh, it seems to me that it is not closely related at all to, to the regulation of foreign commerce. It is not necessary and proper to the regulation of foreign commerce, even in the sort of weak sense of necessary that was uh, has been put on that word by McCullough versus Maryland. Um, and, and I'm also very doubtful that the uh, naturalization power uh, that uh, Eugene referred to uh, will, will get anywhere here because it's, uh, it is also not necessary to, uh, to a naturalization uh, for Congress to provide that this passport make any particular statement one way or the other uh, about, the, uh, about the sovereign status of Jerusalem. So I, I think what Congress is trying to do here is to make a statement or, or to allow Mr. Zivotofsky to make a statement um, about uh, Jerusalem and Israel. Uh, and uh, while I don't think that that interferes with an exclusive power of the president, I don't think it arises from any of the granted powers of Congress in the first place. So that's why I would come down on the side of the president here, although this is an argument that's only made secondarily in the president's briefs uh, and not the one that the Solicitor General is principally focused on. Great, Eugene. Yeah, uh, Eugene, Mike, Mike, Mike has strongly uh, posed the challenge. He says you, you've noted two powers in Article One, Section 8, the power to regulate foreign commerce and the power to establish a uniform rule of naturalization, and neither of those powers can be extended to this action. What is your response? 
So first of all, let me frame our debate by saying it's interesting that this is what we're debating, because the case is usually seen as a, a case about what we know, the executive's power, what are the limits of the uh, executive's exclusivity in, in foreign affairs, and we're turning it into rather a, a, a different direction. Uh, what is the Article One limits on, on, on Congress's power? The same kind of question that, for example, was discussed in Sibelius, the uh, Affordable uh, Care Act case. Uh, so the, I think in theory, Mike's arguments could be, uh, could be well taken, but on the facts, they seem to me to be precluded by the uh, admissions uh, and the facts as developed uh, in the record in, in the trial court. So the executive says, why? Now, Mike previously mentioned the historic function of passports as being a communication to uh, foreign countries. And that indeed has been a historic function. And for most of that historic function, there was no reference to place of birth on the passport. because It's not an uh, essential or important part of that core function. That was added in the, uh, in the early 20th century as part of a modernization of the, uh, of the passport regime. And today, the passport is much more than a communication to, uh, to foreign countries. It is an integrated travel document in which, for example, on the back page, it tells you who to call if you run into trouble when you're traveling, and even such things as where, where you can file for your social security benefits. That is obviously not a communication to foreign countries who cannot collect social security benefits. It's a communication to American citizens. So the passport is a, is a, a, a multifaceted product, a passport book with different sections, one of which, one page of which is a communication to foreign countries. Other parts serve other functions. And as was well developed uh, in, in the trial court, the functions of the place of birth are to help communication about Americans who are traveling abroad, who need to be identified for various purposes, who might run into different kinds of problems. So you want to, you want to have some identification for them. As it happens, it's place of birth and date of birth. You could imagine other identifications, social security number, height. These are they're not necessarily the best. They're not the most. I can think of a lot of better a lot better ways to identify people. But once the government has said, we find this a useful way to identify people, to relate to them in a way that can help assist or deal with them as they go back and forth between America and other countries, once that point is conceded, then by the loose definition of necessary uh, ad uh, that has been ad uh, ad adopted uh, uh, in, uh, hundreds of years ago, 200 years ago, then clearly, if it's helpful, you know, if it's helpful to call it one way, it could also be helpful to call it another way. Now, if you look, for example, at the National Bureau of Geographic Names, which is a, a real but obscure federal agency, if you look at the uh, list of places called Jerusalem, there's like 20 places in the world called Jerusalem, cities called Jerusalem, uh, in I think a dozen different countries from Brazil to other random places that you'd never imagine. So you might think that saying Jerusalem might not help, might only confuse the issue. You might think the opposite. But that's a completely discretionary judgment call, uh, and it's hard to see that any one uh, opinion on it is better than another. And thus Congress could say, no, we think that this is a better way to, uh, to refer to, uh, to people once that point has been uh, conceded. Or they might even say, if people are being referred to, we just think it's more helpful for the whole process of travel to have them referred to uh, or at least some of them refer to in a way which they don't find obnoxious. That might also help.
creates fewer arguments with consular officials as they go back and forth. So once the point has been conceded that it is to help assist in the processing and travel of Americans, then how you, how you do that is well within the uh, broad parameters of necessary. Great. Mike, uh, Eugene has said uh, that uh, in practice, if not in theory, the modern passport has evolved to serve a broad function that can be considered within Congress's power to regulate foreign commerce and naturalization. What's your response to that functionalist argument? And then, uh, moreover, I'll ask you to explain your uh, interesting comment that this case is the most important originalist case at the Supreme Court this term. What did you mean by that? What are the original meaning and practice of executive power Tell us about diplomatic communication and recognition, and, and how does that uh, relate to your response to uh, Eugene? Uh, sure. Uh, I'll take the first of those uh, first. Um, my, my response to, to Eugene on, on the, uh, the purpose of the passport is I, I certainly agree that as a factual matter, that, that is a function that the passport serves, the passport in general, uh, precisely as he describes. Uh, however, I don't think that's the function that the um, Jerusalem provision uh, in, that is at issue in Zivotofsky uh, describes. Um, the, uh, that provision was enacted um, as, as part of the Foreign Relations Authorization Act in 2003, um, Section 214 of that act. And Section 214 of that act is entitled, quote, United States policy with respect to Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Uh, it then carries on uh, through various sections uh, enacting various things that uh, to express Congress's commitment uh, to, for example, placing the United States Embassy in Israel in Jerusalem uh, and uh, barring funding of publication of official government documents that did not list Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. And then further on down the statute, we come to the, um, the provision that is at issue in this, uh, in this case. Um, so, so it seems to me quite clear um, just from the, from the face of the statute without engaging any debates about the appropriateness of looking at the motive of the unexpressed motive of Congress. I, I think it's quite clear that in looking at the, uh, um, the, the, the face of this statute that, the, um, that Congress's purpose in enacting it um, was, was not the, uh, the purposes that uh, Eugene describes, um, but rather to, uh, to make a statement uh, or rather uh, in the case of this particular uh, provision to allow Zivotofsky to make a statement uh, regarding a, the relationship between Jerusalem uh, and, and Israel. Um, and I think it's on that ground that we need to evaluate um, whether Congress is acting um, within uh, its powers or not. And I think sometimes it is and sometimes it's not. And for example, I think it is within Congress's power to bar funding for the publication of official government documents that do not list Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, because that is another power of Congress uh, we haven't mentioned, but it's a very important one. It's, it's the appropriations power, the spending power. And Congress can use that to express its views with regard to foreign policy, even if it uh, interferes with the president. But in this uh, case of the, uh, uh, the line of the passport, I just don't see how to link it up uh, to anything that, uh, that Congress is properly supposed to be doing under Article One, Section 8. Um, so let me turn to the Mike, second part of your let, question. Let me, actually, if, if, please forgive me for interrupting, but that was such a good response that I want to give Eugene a chance to respond to it. What, what do you say, yeah, Eugene, sure. to Mike's claim that in practice, really, Congress was intending to interfere with the president's uh, prerogatives? Right, so again, this is an argument which I think has to at least partly uh, turn on uh, legislative intent. And the face of the statute, I think the only thing on the face uh, of the statute is, is the title, 
which is, uh, I think, a, a thin basis for establishing legislative intent. But more importantly, this is a statute, like many other statutes, that have lots of parts which are separable and distinct. So one part is about moving the embassy. That part uh, seems to more directly relate to sovereignty. That's one separate section. And that might help explain why, in that provision, uh, a waiver was put in allowing the president to not apply it, because Congress understands that when it, uh, when it gets into those kind of things, it should perhaps uh, give room to the president uh, for flexibility. On the other hand, this is, this is a separate provision, uh, and the two provisions could have uh, different motives, and they don't need to stand or fall together. And the fact that one has a waiver provision and the other doesn't suggests that Congress was looking at them in very different ways in terms of their foreign relations impact. More importantly, this provision uh, also, uh, as Mike said, to, uh, the embassy has to, you know, is, is, is supposed to be moved. And it's supposed to be moved whether American citizens who would go to the embassy want it moved or not. Whereas with the passport, people can put in Israel, or they could not put in Israel. Now, when there's a definite congressional view on sovereignty, uh, it's usually not multiple choice, or usually not left to the election uh, of the uh, passport holder. There, there are some exceptions, but that's not the typical way if you want to show that you're recognizing sovereignty, to leave it up to uh, the election of the passport holder would not, would not be the standard way. So I think, uh, I think the argument from congressional intent is a serious one. Uh, I think that's the, uh, one of the best arguments on, on the part of the executive. But the evidence on intent uh, is not one-sided. It goes different ways. And most of the evidence about intent is drawn from a separate section of, uh, of the same statute. Great. Uh, Mike, let's go back then to the question about originalism. Why do you believe that this is the most important originalist case of the Supreme Court this term? And what did the original meaning and practice of executive power tell us about the case? Well, I must point out to start with that uh, you're, you're quoting me from my blog there, and I, I was making the, in part of the somewhat flip comment that there aren't a lot of cases this term that are of originalism interest. So this one is uh, it's a fairly low bar this, uh, this term compared to, for example, last term when we had the recess appointments case and the, uh, uh, the chemical weapons convention case that were very important um, structural separation of powers cases with a lot of history and originalism in them. Uh, but with that disclaimer, let me say I do do stand by the proposition that this is a it is an important uh, case about the um, the Constitution structure and, and its original understanding, um, and, and the reason is because although in the debate between myself and Eugene, I, I think I'm right and I'm not moved by his response, but ultimately I don't think it matters all that much which of us is right on the point that we've been arguing about. Um, what, what I think matters very much about this case um, is they did not reach the conclusion um, that the president has an exclusive power here. And that ties back to the points I made at, at the, uh, the outset of our discussion, um, that, that the idea of a wide-ranging exclusive presidential power um, in, uh, in foreign affairs is not something that has roots in the founding era. As I mentioned, uh, Hamilton, who was the, the premier advocate of executive power in the original, in the original period in the, in the founding era, um, did not take that view. Uh, and it was rather something that was invented by the United States Supreme Court in the 1930s in a case called the United States versus Curtis Wright, uh, which has been widely discredited um, uh, in terms of its uh, reliance on the founding era. Um, so a, a resurrection of that idea of, uh, 
exclusive power, I think, is, um, is, is quite dangerous. Um, and it's dangerous not because what it would mean for this case, but what it might mean for other cases where Congress more clearly has um, uh, where Congress is more clearly acting in the core of its granted power, for example, the commerce power. Um, suppose Congress did, in the hypothetical I suggested, impose uh, trade sanctions on a, a uh, country that um, the president was attempting to establish uh, good relations with, but which Congress thought the best way uh, to, to proceed would, was to, um, to isolate it from the world trading system. Um, would we then be in a position to argue that notwithstanding Congress's operation well within an, an obvious granted power in Article 1, Section 8, um, that, that some uh, exclusive presidential power uh, over the management of foreign affairs, uh, or as they said in the Curtis Wright case, um, the ability to speak with one voice in foreign affairs, um, would, would somehow render unconstitutional Congress's act um, under uh, its clearly granted commerce power. And, and the, the, the idea that this case um, the Zivotofsky case could be a stepping stone to a result of that type is what, what I see as being um, extremely important um, and also um, quite, uh, quite threatening to the, uh, to the um, basic understanding of separation of powers that's, uh, that's uh, represented by the Constitution. Great. Uh, Eugene, uh, please feel free to respond to Mike's uh, originalist uh, claim, if you like, that the framers did not believe the president's uh, power was exclusive. I know you both think that the president yeah, and Congress have concurrent power. We're, yeah. we're in agreement you, you, on that, but I, yeah. I, I think that this case, if it's decided in favor of the, uh, of the government, uh, could raise concerns similar to the kind uh, Mike described, but in the opposite direction. So take another free trade uh, hypothetical. Uh, instead of sanctions, imagine that, uh, take another uh, foreign trade uh, hypothetical, imagine that if instead of sanctions, uh, Congress uh, makes a free trade treaty uh, with a particular country, and that country uh, has, a, has a very big widget industry in its uh, Ruritania region. Now, the American widget producers complain to the president, who's, who's already signed this, and so this is going to be destructive to the American widget industry, this free trade agreement, that includes uh, the region of Ruritania. And the president says, okay, I know what I'll do. I'm gonna say, I don't recognize Ruritania as being part of country X. And so the free trade agreement that has been duly signed into law won't apply that, won't apply that. And uh, by denying recognition to regions, the, uh, the president would be able to uh, eliminate or suspend the effect of duly enacted statutes. That seems another potential form of mischief, uh, which could be uh, which could be just as great. Or the president could take it in another direction. Let's say Congress declares war on North Vietnam. The president could say, you know, the way I see it, Laos is within the borders of North Vietnam, and I will take this as a declaration of war on whatever I decide to call uh, to call North Vietnam. Now, again, all of these examples assume that Congress is using a valid, it's a valid exercise of the enumerated powers. And I think my, what Mike would say is, well, this case is different because there is no valid use of Article uh, Article 1 powers. I'd be surprised if the court chooses to make this an occasion to narrowly interpret the necessary and proper cause. That would entail an interesting coalition of the court. Uh, and I don't think it's, uh, it's the way this case has been conceived of uh, thus far. Uh, on the other hand, it would be an interesting coalition to see. Excellent. 
All right, it's time, gentlemen, for predictions. Uh, the court appeared at oral argument to divide along familiar lines with Justices Roberts, Alito, and Scalia expressing support for Congress's authority and Justices Ginsburg, Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan defending the executive's priority. First of all, Mike, why was that division the case? In, in cases like the health care case, we see the conservatives arguing for constraining Congress's power. And uh, in cases like the Guantanamo cases, it's the liberals who want to constrain the executive. So wh wh why did the court seem to be dividing that way? And which way, of course, will Justice Kennedy vote uh, if he is, in fact, the swing justice? Uh, well, I, I'm not a good predictor of what the Supreme Court's going to do or what's going on in their mind. So uh, you take that with a with a very large caveat. But uh, um, I, I, I think that the argument that, that I've been resting on uh, here, which is that Congress is, Congress is acting outside of its enumerated power, is not one that's been strongly pressed, uh, and so I think it, it isn't um, it isn't getting the the sort of traction that it that that, that a similar argument had in the in the healthcare case, for example, um, and that um, the uh, the the conservative justices um, may simply be reacting to the idea of uh, excessive uh, claims of exclusivity uh, by the president in an attempt to, to maintain a balanced separation of powers, which I, I do think is something that, um, that means a lot uh, to um, not, just not just conservatives, but people who look closely at the uh, Constitution's um, uh, original meaning and, and uh, purpose in creating the different branches. And I, I think, in fact, it's an echo to some extent of the recess appointments case from, uh, from last year when you had uh, the, the, the four justices generally conceived of as conservative, taking the position that uh, the president's recess appointments powers were quite limited um, in order to maintain a balance between the Congress and the president. It's not necessarily a conservative position, but it is a strong pro-separation of powers pr provision. And that, that, I think, was maybe what's motivating them. Um, what, why, why the other justices are, so, are, are seem more strongly in the president's camp here, I, I don't know, but perhaps that it is the sense that the president is best situated to uh, carry on foreign affairs, um, uh, that Congress is, 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 a, is a blunt instrument at best at, in foreign affairs, uh, and, and so perhaps should be kept out. Um, as to a prediction, well, I, I'm, I'm stealing a little bit from what Eugene has written about this, uh, but I think that, um, that Justice Kennedy's suggestion that perhaps this whole thing can be finessed by simply uh, having some sort of a disclaimer uh, that uh, the statement about um, the place of birth doesn't represent any official U.S. policy uh, might be an attractive compromise uh, to justices who are inclined to compromise. Sounds great. Uh, Eugene, tell us more about that prediction of compromise for Justice Kennedy and anything else you'd like to add about the way you expect the justices will divide and, and why they seem to be dividing along the lines that they are. So I'm not entirely sure I understand the uh, position of the liberal justices to the extent that much of the, much of the questioning was of the tenor that how can we uh, force the executive to do this when the executive is coming and telling us that this is going to create huge problems in the world that he'll have to do uh, deal with. Countries will get angry. Uh, I know that in the uh, in the first round of oral arguments, and this was first in the Supreme Court in 2011, Justice Sotomayor said, you know, there, there might be war. Uh, and um, that's that's quite a thing for the for the court to force upon the president. Uh, I wasn't. I would not even contrast that so much with the uh, the positions in the in the healthcare case as the positions in the series of Guantanamo uh, Guantanamo Bay cases, in which uh, the court did not mind overcoming uh, 
many strong assertions by the executive uh, that interfering with the regime established in Guantanamo Bay was going to create lots of international problems. Where do you send these people? How do you conduct this war? Which is surely an important part of uh, uh, foreign relations. And the court said, don't worry, everything will be okay. So, uh, and they seem to have been you know, at least partially right that the, uh, the, uh, the parade of horribles invoked by, the, uh, by President Bush uh, did not come to materialize. So it's not, clear, it's not clear why there's a greater credence to the parade of horribles, uh, to the parade of horribles here. Uh, I think it looks like it's going to be uh, a close case. It's very hard to predict. I agree that the uh, disclaimer compromise uh, is, uh, seems quite likely. And what makes, it, what makes it particularly likely is that it doesn't break so much new ground. That's what the executive did in response to the Taiwan passport law. Uh, and China issued a diplomatic protest, and everything has been uh, okay ever since. So that, that idea didn't come out of thin air. It came out from the executive's own response and treatment of the, uh, of the, Taiwan, of the Taiwan passport. So I do think that the decision is most likely to rest on grounds much narrower than uh, either the big versions of recognition and exclusive executive power or what we've talked about today, the extent of Congress's Article I power and the scope of the necessary proper clause. Uh, the, I think the, the most likely ruling will be, I don't know which way it will go, uh, but it will be uh, technical uh, and, uh, and narrow and uh, based really saying what the statute really says. It doesn't really say it's recognition uh, or, or something similarly narrow. On the other side, let me just uh, stress for the audience what we already know is not going to be part of the ruling. So this is not a ruling about whether Jerusalem is or is not in Israel as a matter of law, as a matter of fact. Uh, already uh, in the previous version of this case, the last time it was in the Supreme Court, when the Supreme Court decided it wasn't a political question, what that means is that the resolution of this question does not require the court to say whether Jerusalem is or is not in Israel. If the court had to make its own determination, is Jerusalem in Israel, is Jerusalem not in Israel, they would probably have to say, well, who are we? We're just the Supreme Court. We don't know where anything is, and we don't know who's sovereign is or anything. By ruling that it's not a political question, one thing they have made clear is this is not about the status of Jerusalem. It is either about the interpretation of statutes or the interpretation of the Constitution of the United States as it bears on the powers of the political branches. Wonderful. All right, gentlemen, it's time for closing arguments. Uh, Mike, Justice Kagan remarked during oral, oral arguments that history suggests that everything is a big deal with respect to the status of Jerusalem. And she went on to say, and right now Jerusalem is a tinderbox because of issues about the status of and access to particular holy sites there, and sort of everything matters, doesn't it? And my question is, is this case actually a big deal for foreign policy? Why should our listeners care in practice about the outcome? Well, I don't feel that I have the expertise to answer the question uh, as, as a matter of uh, Middle Eastern politics. Uh, that's not my area of expertise, although I, I would say that I'm somewhat inclined to agree with Eugene that um, that I, I, I think those statements um, may, may be a little overblown. It's, it's not obvious to me that, uh, that there would be grave consequences. Uh, I agree with Eugene that the, uh, the finessing of the uh, Taiwan-China situation, which is uh, also a, a very fraught diplomatic issue, uh, suggests that uh, perhaps this is not as big a deal as some people um, might suggest. Uh, 
But uh, be, be that as it may, uh, even if we assume that, that it is a big deal, uh, I, I think I, I come out with, uh, with Justice Scalia here um, that, uh, that Congress is free to make something a big deal uh, if Congress wishes to do so. As long as Congress is acting within its granted powers, um, Congress can, uh, well, it can go the full, the full distance of declaring war, uh, which is about as big a deal as you can make anything. Um, so uh, if Congress can do that, uh, I'm confident that Congress can make um, lesser statements that may, uh, may disturb uh, or upset uh, countries that the president might prefer to get along with. So uh, I guess I'm, I'm willing to accept the, um, the hypothetical that, that, um, that this could make uh, a big deal, uh, make, it, make a, a, a big disturbance in, uh, in foreign relations, although I'm, I'm skeptical that that hypothetical is actually true, but I tell my students not to fight the hypothetical, work with the hypothetical. So working with the hypothetical, I would say um, it, it, is, it is, does not take something out of Congress's power, uh, simply that it might create uh, diplomatic difficulties uh, for the President and the United States. Congress is entitled to make that decision if it wants to, but only so long as Congress, in making that decision and acting upon it, uh, acts within the powers that are granted to it uh, in the text of the Constitution. Eugene, same uh, question to you. You've suggested that this is not a big deal for foreign policy. In what other ways does it matter, and why should our listeners care about it? Uh, it's to the extent that the issue has been framed the way it is, I think it's potentially a big deal to the extent that it raises the question uh, in how I see the case of whether the executive can avoid a statute that has been signed into law by subsequently complaining about its foreign policy effects uh, to the extent that that's part of the argument. Uh, I think that would be a big deal if the court decides that. I agree. I agree with Mike that uh, Congress sh uh, Congress can implement laws which uh, greatly complicate the executive's life in foreign affairs. I think uh, the suggestion by justices uh, about Jerusalem being a tinderbox is very alarming because I don't think Supreme Court justices should be attempting to decide cases based on what they read in the newspaper. Uh, in the morning. That's, I think, well, well beyond their role, but uh, this, might not be, uh, this might not be what listeners want to hear, uh, but I think the foreign policy consequences and the importance of this to the broader world are somewhat overstated. In particular, uh, I'll take as evidence of this, that no foreign government filed an Amex brief in this case, either this time or last time. And it's quite common for foreign governments to file amicus briefs in cases that they feel strongly about, or even cases that they feel something about. Uh, that's happened in many foreign relations cases. That's even happened in cases purely about internal American uh, constitutional law, such as the death penalty. So if so many countries felt so strongly about it, it raises the question, why didn't they uh, take an opportunity to tell that to, uh, tell that to the Supreme Court? And I think there's a reason for it. I think the reason is they want to preserve what I would call uh, plausible deniability. That is to say, countries who do not regard Jerusalem as part of Israel and uh, who don't want it regarded as part of Israel, uh, it doesn't really help them much if it's the official position of the United States that Jerusalem is part of Israel. So if the court holds in favor of the petitioner, Zivotofsky, that he gets to put Israel on his passport, those countries are clearly going to want to say, oh, that doesn't actually mean anything. 
that doesn't mean America's recognized Jerusalem as part of Israel, because that would undercut some of their uh, some of their diplomatic arguments. So much as they might uh, be somewhat happier if the court uh, rules in favor of the president, if the court rules the other way, they're going to say, oh, look, there's nothing to see here. It doesn't matter. Uh, and it seems to be, uh, again, very much against their own diplomatic interests to attach too much of a significance to it. Uh, and that might explain why they did not, uh, uh, why they did not pre-commit themselves to having to care afterwards by filing uh, amicus briefs uh, in advance. So the, the consequence to the larger outside world, uh, I think, is, is almost nil. Fascinating. Thank you, uh, Mike Ramsey and Eugene Kontorovich, for a rigorous and illuminating constitutional debate. Please join us for the next of our We the People constitutional podcasts. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.